I'm really excited to be here this morning and so excited that I've decided to share with you probably the most profound thing I've ever learned in my entire life. And it's this, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. I mean, think about it. It's seriously one of the most profound things. Whenever we're stepping into something in life, the greatest way to learn is through experience. And so I think we, tip, we typically like to think that once we, if we're stepping into something that's big, like marriage or having children or getting a new job, that if we could just have maybe a little orientation, maybe some premarital counseling, maybe read a good book on parenting, that for the most part, we, will, we typically know what, we'll, what we get to expect. But really, in reality, we don't know what we know until we know it. Any parents in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. I judged everyone before I became a parent. I'll never do that. I'm doing that and more. We don't know, we don't know it until we know it. And really, the best example, bar none, for sure, is marriage. So, I had premarital counseling. We did all the different things that we needed to do to be as prepared as we possibly could to be married. I'm married to Lauren Hunter, the most beautiful woman in all the world. And if you just wonder where she's sitting, just look for the light just radiating from, from her glow. But no amount of premarital counseling, no seminar, no coaching, anything like that could ever get me ready or prepared to understand that no one can hear things in the middle of the night better than a woman. Not only that, but no one told me in any premarital counseling or anything like that that I should have been taking hand-to-hand combat classes my entire life. Because if Lauren hears something in the middle of the night, it doesn't matter how dressed I am, it doesn't matter if I can't see anything, you better go fight that bandit. And I learned this for sure when um, Lauren and I had been married just about a year. We were staying in St. Louis over Christmas break with her parents. We were in the basement and in, in St. Louis, it's, cl- it's very cold in, at Christmas time. We're not wearing shorts or anything like that like we get to do here. And, and we're in the basement, so it's especially cold because you're literally under the ground. And so there we are. We're on a blow-up mattress, but it was a little bit, there was a leak or something. So it was a little bit like a blow-up air bunk bed. You know, Lauren was on the top bunk. I'm down here sleeping on the ground. And since it was so cold, there was a space heater there. So we're going to sleep. And, and something you need to know about me, too, is I'm like three or four different kinds of blind. I mean, when I take my contacts out, it is lights out. I am unfunctionable. Like, there's nothing that I'm able to do. And so I got to hope that my glasses are nearby, but in this case, they weren't. So all of a sudden, we're sleeping. And about 3 a.m., Lauren grabs me and goes, Matt, wake up. Someone just shot my parents. What? I go, what? Someone just shot my parents. And I'm like, baby, no one shot your parents. And she's like, did you hear that bang? That was a gunshot. They shot my parents. And I'm like, that that can't be. And so I'm like trying to get my bearings to try and like talk her down. She knows I'm sharing this story, by the way. (laughs) It's a great story. They lived. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So... I'm like trying to talk her down from that. That can't be the case. No way, no way. And then she says, 
to me, as we hear some, some footsteps up above us, she goes, that, that's them. There they go. Go up there. What? Go get them. That's the guy who shot my parents. I'm like, babe, I'm in my underwear. I don't know where my glasses are. I, what do you want me to do? Go up there. Hey, hey. Hey, stop. If they shot your parents, they're going to shoot me. So I'm able to kind of talk her down from that. And somehow, I don't know how, but we go back to sleep. Well, we wake up the next morning, and what had happened was the space heater had fallen over. And it, you know, the, that was the, the gunshot. And then Lauren's mom, who had to get up early in the morning to go to work, when she was running outside, there, a car was parked behind her car, so she had to run back inside and run outside. That was the, the frantic run of the, of the guy getting away. But nothing could have ever prepared me for that moment. I entered into marriage, and we enter into most experiences, the vast majority of things that we enter into, we, enter, we begin them unprepared. But it's in the process of beginning something unprepared that we actually become prepared. So now, 14 years later, we hear a sound in the middle of the night. We heard it last night. Your boy got up, grabbed my glasses, know right where they are, and I'm ready <laughs> to probably find nothing, you know? But we begin things unprepared, but it says we begin them unprepared that we actually become prepared. And nobody understood this principle better than Jesus. In fact, this is how he dealt with his disciples constantly. It's actually our characteristic of Jesus this morning. So if you have your pen, grab your journal, you want to write this down. Jesus prepared people by sending them out unprepared. Jesus prepared people by sending them out unprepared. And that's exactly what we're going to see Jesus do with his disciples. In, the, in our story this morning, in our passage of scripture, Jesus knows that his time is coming to a close on earth. He's about to complete the mission that he came here to complete. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to pay for our sins. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to appear to witnesses, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And he knows that this mission that he's about to complete now, he's he needs to pass it on to his disciples for them to continue to carry the mission of seeking and saving the lost. But the, only, the problem with that, as he's about to hand this off, is he knows that they're not prepared for that. They're completely unprepared for this mission. And so they have some training. There's some training that he needs to give to them. Now, most rabbis at that time, if they needed to get their people ready, their students ready to be trained for a mission. They would have some big seminars. They'd open up the synagogue. They'd bring people in, have some really robust curriculum to share with them so that they could be ready to, to go on the mission. But that wasn't Jesus' style. Jesus' style was a little bit more full send. So he's going to take these disciples and he's going to send them out. Even though they feel completely unprepared, he's going to prepare them by sending them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. And while you're turning there, we're going to start in verse 1. I, I want to get you ready for, by sharing a little bit of the context. In the beginning of Luke chapter 9, for the first time, Jesus sends somebody out other than himself. He sends out the 12 disciples. He gives them the authority to go, to teach, to preach, and to heal. 
But these are the only ones that he sent out. But Jesus understands that this mission of seeking and saving the lost, it's so important, he needs to get more people involved. And so he grabs these 72 to send them out. They're brand new believers. They're just figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus is sending them out. Let's look at what he says to them as he sends them. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 12. Here's what it says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. So here Jesus is with these brand new disciples and he's sending them out unprepared to prepare them to continue the mission of God after he sends into heaven. And when you read through this passage, it's pretty clear to see that Jesus prepared people, like he sends them out. He doesn't train them before he sends them out. He sends them out actually to train them. And that's what's happening right here in this passage. Because these are brand new people who've just decided to follow Jesus. And as soon as they say yes to him, he says, go to them. I mean, these, these are brand new followers of Jesus, fresh out of the box. They still have the new car smell on them. That's how, that's how green they are in the faith. And you might wonder and think, well, how do you know that, Matt? Like, you're, you're presuming a lot on the text. Well, did you see what it says? It says in verse 1, that the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him. So these, these aren't the regular disciples. These are 72 more. And the reason why I know that they're new believers is because verse 1 starts with the term, with the words, after this. And in the Greek, that means after this. So there's something ahead of this that brings us to after this. And that's the verses ahead. So let's look at what it says. That was pretty funny. Luke 9. 57, some of you will get it later. Here's what it says. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going along the road and he's calling people to follow him. 
And there's a lot of people who are struggling with this call to follow Jesus. They've got other things that they want to do before they decide to follow Jesus. But there are others who are answering the call. And these others are the 72. They've just said yes to Jesus. And as soon as they say yes to following him, Jesus says, go. They couldn't be more unprepared, but Jesus is preparing them by sending them out unprepared. And I think this is one of the places where we most misunderstand what it means to follow Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus is the invitation to join him on his mission. From the moment that we say yes to him, he is saying go to us. The invitation to follow Jesus isn't just a get out of jail free card. Listen, praise God that he made a way for us to belong to him, that we are going to get to spend eternity with him forever and ever, that he grabbed us by the hand and one day he's going to take us to the promised land. Praise God. But that is not why Jesus saves us. If he did, he'd just take us to heaven now. He saved us to send us. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to join him on his mission. That's why these brand new, fresh believers in Jesus who are still even figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, they say yes to him as Lord, and he says, go. You've got a job to do. I'm sending you out unprepared to prepare you. I think that we think that we need all kinds of training. But that's not what Jesus does. We say yes, he says go. Imagine if we did this at our church. Like think for a second, if someone came to Fielder for the first time, they put their faith in Jesus, and then we say, okay, great, you're gonna go back to your neighborhood, you're gonna knock on doors, you're gonna preach, teach, and heal, and you're gonna tell these people, the kingdom of God is at hand, you're gonna meet their needs, you're gonna heal them, the kingdom of God is at hand, and if they reject that, you're gonna wipe the dust off your feet and you're gonna say, it's going to be worse for Sodom or better for Sodom than for you, sucker. If we did what Jesus is doing here, I think at our church, people would look at us and say, do you know they're looking for you? The squirrels, they think you're nuts. I'm going to find another church where I'm not going to be sent out for the mission of God. Listen. When we say yes to Jesus, we have to be obedient to go. It's why we choose to follow him. And you can see pretty clear right here that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. They may think that he's nuts, but he's sending them out to prepare them even though they're unprepared. And I think we need to take a step back when we read this and really think about what's happening and what Jesus is doing and do what my six-year-old Emmy has been saying lately. She's six years old, and she's just saying all the time, y'all better recognize, and then she tells us something. I think we need to step back, and we need to recognize that what Jesus is doing here completely throws out our excuse that I'm not, I'm just not ready to reach out to the lost yet. Anybody here think that would fly with Jesus after what we just read? Like, he's not even letting Someone bury his own father. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You go proclaim the kingdom. Our excuses of I'm not ready, I need more training, I'm just not sure, he throws those out. You don't need to be trained in evangelism before you go. You need to go because he said go. 
You don't need to memorize the book of Romans before you go. You need to hear his voice and respond and be obedient. Now, don't, I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want you to get it twisted. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that training is bad. I'm not saying that going to conferences and learning how to share your faith is bad. Listen, I grew up in a home where I was trained practically from birth on the importance of telling people about Jesus by my dad and my mom. As student pastor where I served for a number of years, I made sure that every single person that served on our staff, that led at house life, led at camp, was trained on how to share the gospel and how to walk with someone as they put their faith in Jesus. Now as the South Oaks campus pastor, every single person on my staff, from my student pastor to children's pastor to my ministry assistant, knows how to, I've trained them on how to share the gospel. There are unbelievable tools out there that we should all get our hands on, whether it's gospel appointment training, whether it's how to share the gospel using three circles, or the, or the, uh, the missional wheel of how to view every single conversation through the lens of going from an introduction all the way up from general conversation to spiritual conversation to a gospel conversation to have a gospel decision. These are great tools. and We need to get our hands on them. We need to, to learn them so we can step out in confidence and do that. But listen... Until we come to a brokenness and an understanding that God sent his spirit and I chose to follow him. He's filled me with the power of the spirit to send me out to a lost world to be the light in the middle of darkness to share and actually do it. All the training is meaningless. All the seminars are powerless until I come to an understanding and conviction that Jesus said, go and I go. It doesn't mean jack squat until we actually put feet to that training. They didn't have, they weren't equipped with any training. They were equipped with their story that they had decided to follow Jesus and that's how Jesus sends them out. Listen, the greatest preparation isn't understanding, it's obedience. We want to understand all this stuff, but our understanding can wait, our obedience cannot. It's actually our obedience that is the fuel. It's the obedience of going is the fuel for us coming to a greater desire for understanding. Here's what I mean. Nothing will make us understand greater our need for God's word than when we go out and we share the gospel with someone and they ask, a, ask us a question that we don't know. That will bring to me an understanding, a greater desire to go back to God's word and understand what it is so that I can tell them, hey, here's what God's word says about that. Nothing will give you a greater understanding of your need for gospel community and biblical community rather than when you're out sharing the gospel and you're faced with adversity. That will make you understand, I need other people to come around me. Nothing will give you a greater understanding to the fact that our God is worthy of all praise and all glory and honor than standing next to someone who has recently put their faith in Jesus because you shared your testimony with them. And that will rapture you up in an understanding that God is so worthy of my worship because he sets slaves free. It's our it's our. It's our obedience to go that fuels an understanding of how important it is to go in the first place. It's why we follow Jesus. It's why he saved us. He saved us to send us. But here's the good news, church. He doesn't send us alone. 
God accomplishes his mission in us by sending us in community. You see it at the top of verse 1. Do you notice that he sends them out two by two? He doesn't send them alone. He sends them in community. This is why at Fielder Church, we so encourage you to be a part of a community group. Yes, so you can grow together, but much more than growing together, we want you to go together. One of our 14 goals is that by the year 2026, a part of our vision is that every single community group would serve in the community once a month. And we want to go and serve people so that we can share with people the motivation for why we serve. We don't need to get ready so we can go. God tells us to go to get us ready. This is what Jesus does. He sends us out in community, and as we go, we look to share the good news with people. But here's the thing. God's called us to be a missional church. This vision we have, this this audacious vision of doing all these things, of sending out 100 global missionaries, of sending out 1,400 mission expanders, of us being people who serve continually, people who live on the mission of God, people inhale and exhale the gospel and make disciples that do the same. God's called us to be a missional church. But you know what? We will never be a missional church until we become a praying church. Did you hear Jesus' first instruction after he sent them out? He sends them out, and his very first instruction to joining on the mission is to pray. Look at what he says in verse, in verse 2. He says to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You guys, we will never step into the mission of God until we truly begin the mission of God with prayer. It's his first instruction. We won't be a missional church. We won't join him in his mission until we become a praying church. He says, you need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. That's his first instruction. To send out laborers, praying earnestly. That's repetitive, that's passionately, that's understanding that there is a desperation that only God can do it. And when we come to understand that these prayer gatherings that we're having starting on on March 9th, that the goal of that, the main attraction is the presence of Jesus. Jesus wants to send us out together, but he wants to call us together to pray first, praying earnestly to him. Because when we enter into his presence and we see him for who he really is, we understand that he is on his throne, he is king, And that strengthens our faith. And we need our faith to be strengthened. We need to experience his presence. We need to experience calling out on his name. We need to see him perform miracles. We need to see him stretch out his mighty hand and do what only he can do. Because when we go from that, when we go from his presence, carrying his presence through the spirit of God, we go with a wild faith. Because the truth is the mission of God requires wild faith. Because the mission that he's called us to is not an easy assignment. Did you see how he describes it in verse three. Look at what he says. He says, I am sending, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And a son of, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking, what they provide, 
for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Listen, joining Jesus on his mission requires wild faith. You hear the first thing he says? He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's wild. I mean, imagine what it was like for these first people to hear that. They've just decided to follow Jesus. Then maybe they're getting into a huddle. They're ready for Jesus to give them this great pump-up speech. Like they're ready to be inspired to go out on the mission of God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. What? All the inspiration is gone in that moment. That's not the pump-up speech they were expecting. Jesus is like, listen, I'm going to send you out as soft, fluffy, vulnerable creatures to go out amongst a pack of ferocious apex predators. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Listen, they are not excited. Any inspiration they had to go is gone. The only thing that will keep them going is faith. Joining Jesus on his mission requires wild faith. And they went. Now, I think when we think about this comparison, it's not a very good head-to-head matchup. You know, sheep, they can, I mean, they can tear up some grass, but wolves, not so much. So when those go to head-to-head, there, there, isn't, there isn't a chance in the, in the world that these sheep can win. So why in the world would Jesus say, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. The reason why is because he wants us to trust him. In fact, this mission that he's called us to is completely impossible in our own strength. That's what he's declaring. He's declaring, against the wolf, you have no strength. You have, there's no chance at all for you to succeed. There's no power in you. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You're vulnerable. But I've conquered the wolf. I've crushed the head of the snake. He's saying, I will be your provider. He wants his sheep to trust that he is the good shepherd, will provide protection, will provide provision, will provide victory for us when we say yes to him telling us to go. He wants us to believe him, to trust him wholeheartedly, understanding that he's the one who's going to lead us into victory. That's why he says what he says in verse 4. That's why he says, don't take a money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Because he wants us to trust that he's the one who's going to provide for every single need that we could ever have as we say yes to going with him. And one of the greatest things that he promises to provide for us is persons of peace. Like he promises, that's why he says, announce peace to this house. And if, if a person of peace is there, peace will stay with them. Jesus is going to provide for us, persons of peace, everywhere we go, that are ready to receive us, that are going to give us what we need, protection, provision, food, shelter, and even better, they're going to be ready to receive the message of peace, the gospel of peace, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. And so as we go, as we look for persons of peace, I want you to know that for you and for me, these people are everywhere. In every town, in every time, in every neighborhood, anywhere that we could ever go, even close countries to the gospel, there are persons of peace that Jesus has placed there to provide for people to go to. They're in our neighborhoods. They're, they're, they're on our streets. They're in our apartment complexes. They're in our jobs. They're in our schools. They're in our English class. 
persons of peace that the Lord is providing for us. And what we need to be willing to do is tell them the good news of who Jesus is and tell them about the Prince of Peace, the one who can truly bring them fulfillment and life to the full. We need to be willing to find these persons of peace and tell them the good news of who Jesus is. And the best way to do that is to meet their needs and then point them to Jesus. That's what, that's what the mission is for these disciples. Look at what Jesus says to them in verse 9. He says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to you, your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The first thing he says is he says, heal the sick. Jesus is telling them, they've got a simple task. He's going, I've given you power to heal the sick. I've given you power to cast out demons. I've given you authority to do these things. And I'm giving you that power and that assignment so that you can just point them to the real authority. You can point them to the real power. Jesus didn't grant these 72 people power so that people could be impressed with them. He sent them ahead of him to meet the needs of the people so they could point them to the one who's coming after him, Jesus, the real healer, where the real power is at, where the salvation is coming. It's coming in Jesus. And so as they went ahead on the mission of God, they were meeting the needs of the people and then they were pointing them to Jesus. That they needed not, they needed to get ready for the one who was coming. They needed to get ready for the one who was gonna usher in his kingdom and he's a king, and you need to respond to it. Listen, it wasn't up to them whether or not these disciples, they weren't trying to convince people. Like, literally, it was so simple what they were doing. They were meeting their needs, and then they were pointing them to Jesus. The kingdom of God has come. They weren't trying to persuade them. They weren't trying to convince them. They were just meeting needs and pointing them to Jesus, and Jesus was the one who was bringing people to himself. You know, I think a lot of times... We, we convolute the mission of God. Like we make it so complicated. We think that we need to have every single thing that we could possibly have to defend our faith. Like we need to be able to stand up and defend the, the Christian faith. You think Jesus needs you to defend him? Well, we gotta, we gotta stand up for a Christian. We gotta defend it. We gotta be able to, to debate these people. Listen, being, it's not your debate skills that's going to win a lost world for Christ. It's our love that's going to do it. It's our love that's going to compel people in a world of hatred, in a world of debate, in a world of everyone canceling everyone else and spewing hatred on each other. It's our love meeting people's needs that gives us the platform to say, this God that I serve is the reason that motivates me to move towards you in love because he so richly loved me. That is why we have the opportunity to share is in loving people. Listen, by God's grace, I've gotten to see a lot of people put their faith in Jesus. I've gotten to be in the room when people have put their faith in Jesus. I've never led anyone to Christ. Jesus said in John 6 that no one can come unto me unless the Father himself draws him. But by his grace and his goodness, he's allowed me to be there when people are putting their faith in Jesus. And can I tell you something? It's never happened once where I said to somebody, something so spiritually clever, and we were arguing that they went, oh, oh, you got me. You're right. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus. No way. Only the Spirit of God can break through and get a hold of their heart and give them the faith to say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. People are motivated by love, not our arguments. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Meet needs and then point them to Jesus. And when we come around people and we pray for them and, and we ask God to heal them, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, they see God move. They see God move in power in their life and he draws them to faith and they put their faith in Jesus. You know what happens to us? We get to experience inexpressible, unmeasurable joy because we see God move in power. Look at what happens in verse 17 with the disciples. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Can you imagine what they were experiencing? They're so fired up. They're coming back with joy. Because they're like, Jesus, we told the demons to go. And they went. Can you believe this, Jesus? Like we prayed for people and they were healed. Like imagine, imagine church, friends, people of God. If you prayed, how you would feel if you prayed over someone that, and asked God to heal them and they were healed. Imagine how you'd feel if there was some demon of oppression oppressing someone and you prayed for the demon to go and it went. Man, you'd be fired up. You wouldn't believe the power of God moving in your life. You'd be so excited. That's what's happening to them. But something that we need to understand is that Jesus is far more interested in what he can do in us than through us. And so they're fired up that they're experiencing power, that God's using them and using them in power. But Jesus stops them and says, listen, there's something greater for you to rejoice in. I've got a greater joy than even what you're seeing happening in your life. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is far more interested in what he can do in us than through us. He's saying, listen, I gave you authority to do these things. But there's something greater you need to rejoice in. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Church family, it is time for us to be a people who rejoice in that. It's time for us to be a people who celebrate that God made a way for our names to be written in heaven. Because here's the truth. You want to know why we won't go? Do you want to know why we have excuses and go, oh, I'm not ready yet. It's because we've forgotten how good this news is. We're rejoiced for anything else. But if someone's dancing in church, it's getting a little weird in here. We're rejoiced for the Cowboys, for the Rangers. We're rejoicing our kids' graduations. We'll shout for them and their accomplishments. It's like pulling teeth to get people to shout to God because he's given them victory because their name is written in heaven. The reason why we don't see God moving in power through us is because we forget how incredible the power of God is in us to make us his. Think about this. Jesus is saying rejoice because me, Matt Hunter, my destiny was hell. 
I was sealed. My spirit was doomed to be behind a gate forever, separated from the presence of God without any hope of ever getting out, any hope of ever getting better. And Jesus left heaven, became a man, lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling all the right requirements of God's law. And then he went to the cross, absorbing the full wrath of God for my sin, for your sin. And then he went to the grave, and on three, three days, he rose up from the grave, shaking off sin, death, and hell, and he conquered it. Yes! And in that moment, he made a way for when I put my faith in Jesus, instead of for my name to be written in hell and to be doomed for eternity apart from God, my name is now written in heaven. We got to rejoice in that church. And when we realize and remember the gospel and rejoice in the fact that Jesus made a way for our names to be written in heaven, boy, it won't matter that we're not prepared. Jesus says, go and we'll go. Jesus says, share and we'll share because that's what we rejoice in is that he's made a way for us to be his. The truth is, that's the greatest miracle. That's the greatest miracle. You realize that? We could cast out demons, but if that person doesn't put their faith in Jesus, they're going to end up in hell anyway. We can see someone who's sick and who's on their way to death, and we can see them healed, but if they don't come to put their faith in Jesus, it's appointed every man to die and face judgment. The greatest miracle is that Jesus would make a way for your name to be written in heaven. We got to rejoice in that. And rejoicing in that will make us go. But we're not going to go until we pray. It's the first instruction that Jesus gave us. We need to remember the gospel this morning. We need to respond to it. But before we can ever come to the point of remembering that and taking the Lord's Supper, sweet church family, we got to repent. I think God wants us to repent this morning. I think God wants to revive us as we get on our face before the Lord and say, please forgive me, God, for being ashamed of the greatest news, for being of, of wanting all these other things rather than just wanting you and rejoice in the fact that you've made me yours. And I want you to know, if you feel like I'm condemning you or pointing the finger at you, listen, I've had to repent over this sermon for the last two weeks, saying, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for how I've been ashamed, how there have been times where I've had opportunities to share the gospel and I've, I've shrieked away in fear. Lord, if, sweet, sweet church family, if we're gonna respond to Jesus and do what he told us to do, man, we got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and that we would come and get on our faces and say, Lord, forgive us. We're not going to be prayerless anymore. We're going to join you on your mission and we're going to begin by praying today. There's a couple ways that you can step into this and actually begin to begin praying today for the mission of God. There's something called Bless Every Home. It's something that our church is involved in. It's an app that it gives you your your the information of our neighbors that live around you, and you can begin every day to pray for your neighbors, pray for persons of peace, pray for ways to meet their needs, pray for opportunities to share the gospel with them. You can step into that today. Every single one of you can download that app and begin praying for your neighbors, praying for the mission of God in your neighborhood. The second way is I want you to challenge you before God, to commit before God that you're gonna be here on March 9th for the prayer gathering. 
where the prize is the presence of Jesus. And you say, I'm going to come and I'm going to pray. And I'm gonna be, we're going to become not a church that prays, but a praying church. And the third thing is choosing right now to turn away from prayerlessness. I'm not talking about praying at dinner. Jared said it great at the beginning during the announcements. We need to become a, not just people who pray, but praying people. Asking God to make a way. We need to repent. And so if you, th- this altar is open this morning. If you need to come and get on your face, for those of you who are watching online, if you need to get on your face at home, let's repent and say, Lord God, forgive us. And here's the good news, he will. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all, all unrighteousness. So let's call, let's ask him to forgive us in his promises, he will. There are gonna be pastors up front if you need to come and confess how you've, how you've been walking in disobedience in some way, do that. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you can be healed. If you feel like you need healing this morning, come. We'll anoint you with oil. We'll do what God said and ask him to heal you. But let's repent. Let's get on our face before God and thank him for forgiving us and change and turn and do something different and become a praying people. If you're here this morning, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus come up to one of the pastors. We would love to hear you as you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Be your witnesses. And then we're going to say, now who are you going to go tell? For those of you watching online, connect with us. Let us know that you're ready to put your faith in Jesus and a pastor will reach out to you. Let's be a people who respond to God. And after we repent, after we check our hearts, after we say, Lord, we're going to be, we're going to start joining you in what you're about. I'll come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let's stand. Let's move how the Lord leads us.